Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. Welcome. Welcome. We are live from our wonderful studios in New Haven with one of our wonderful uh, New Haven panels for the nose. Uh, we'll be talking about two movies today with Tom Breen, a film critic and reporter for the New Haven Independent and host of WNHH Radio's Deep Focus, <laughs> which is a great a movie program in its own right. Uh, Lucy Gelman is editor of The Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink, S-Y-N-C, Pedro Soto, very fittingly for today, is an aerospace executive working on a secret project, which we believe does involve antimatter. And really, you know what? Say no to antimatter, kids. Don't. If <laughs> Just, someone offers yeah. you antimatter at a party or something like that, don't take it. Don't. You know what? You don't do it. Don't do antimatter. It's not good for you. All right. So we're going to begin with the movie uh, Ad Astra, which, I, much to the annoyance of everybody around me, especially my significant other. Um, have been referring to as Ed Asner. Uh, <laughs> and um, so we'll be talking, starting with that a little later on. We've also all been to the Downton Abbey, Abbey movie. Down, it probably has a name, right? <laughs> Downton Abbey the movie? What is I it I think called? it's just Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, okay. Yeah. So, um, so we'll be talking about that as well. So, But let's begin with uh, Ed Asner, and uh, we're going to hear a little clip from the movie. Uh, obviously, this is mainly a vehicle for uh, for Brad Pitt. I mean, he's kind of the only consistent character all the way through the movie. Uh, and he plays Roy McBride. Uh, he's talking to L- L- Lieutenant General Rivas, played by John Ortiz. And John Finn is Brigadier General. You don't care. You don't care who he's talking to. <laughs> uh, just hear this, listen to this clip, and try not to think of it as exposition. <laughs> Major, what can you tell us about the Lima Project? First manned expedition to the outer solar system, sir. Some 29 years ago. And the commander was? He was my father, sir. The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. No data was ever recovered. Deep space missions were halted after that. Roy, we have something that might come as quite a shock to you. We believe your father is still alive near Neptune. My father's alive, sir? We believe so. Roy, the surge seems to be the result of some kind of antimatter reaction. Now, the Lima project was powered by that material, and your father was in charge of it. Now, we're talking about a potentially unstoppable chain reaction here. The uncontrolled release of antimatter could ultimately threaten the stability of our entire solar system. All life could be destroyed. And it's not in this part of the clip, but right at the end of that, all the three actors turn to face the audience and say, did you get all that? Because it's really <laughs> important, all right? Like, it's pretty much the basis of the whole movie. Um, so, yes, and we should say that Brad Pitt's uh, Roy McBride's father, Clifford McBride, is played by Tommy Lee Jones, probably the worst divorced dad ever, uh, moves <laughs> to someplace near Neptune, which is, like, really helpful if you're trying to get in touch with your dad. Well, I'm somewhere near Neptune, you know, just, you know. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, let's uh, talk to the panel a little bit. 
a bit about Ad Astra. We should say that uh, this past weekend, both of these movies, Downton Abbey and Ad Astra, debuted. Uh, Downton Abbey surprised everybody, I think, by how well it did. It was the number one box office movie by a long shot uh, of the weekend. Um, so um, I don't know. Who should we start with? Who wants to go first? Tom, get us get us rolling here. So, yeah, I will happily go first. And I think that based on the email thread before we started the show, I may have liked this movie the most. And going back to that clip that you liked with Colin, I actually have, have no problem with that particular exposition, as clunky-seeming as it may be, because I think it fits into a larger pattern that director James Gray is going for and a history of uh, narrative art that follows this hero's journey trajectory that he's interested in playing with. I mean, there are so many parallels to Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now in this movie. And I think that, you know, what you just played is the Harrison Ford sequence at the beginning of that movie where someone tells Martin Sheen's character that, you know, there's someone upriver who has a lot of political power and it's gone completely off the deep end and you're closely, you know, connected to him and you've got to go up and find him as he's doing all of this crazy stuff. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it, is the, it is the main kind of motivating factor for the plot, but ultimately it's kind of irrelevant to the very the various kind of trials and tribulations that this hero experiences over the course of the movie, the way that the world is fleshed out at each step along the way, and then the kind of psychological winnowing uh, until the audience is just inside of the head. Almost every character becomes completely peripheral, almost an idea uh, in comparison to you know what we see and what we feel and what we experience through the main character, this astronaut who very broadly speaking, has uh, been traumatized by the loss of his dad, uh, who this incredibly accomplished astronaut, uh, who he then realizes may be up to some serious no good. Uh, and I, th- I think that that journey uh, is incredibly rewarding and thought-provoking and filled with uh, immense solitude, which is something that mm. you know, is kind of audacious for a movie to tackle, because solitude can be boring. But it's also an important part, I think, of what the director is trying to explore. All right. So um, I, I just want to, before we go around the rest of the table here, say that one of the interesting things about these two movies is, I mean, this is a very male movie with only, as Lucy is about to tell you, mm-hmm. uh, male characters who speak or mean anything. Uh, Downton Abbey has like this enormous female audience. And, and like I think any showing you go to, uh, it's like four or five to one women to men. So it's kind of interesting. That I don't think we planned it, but it's interesting pairing here. So uh, Lucy, give us your uh, main hot take on Ad Astra. I just could not with this movie. <laughs> I mean, this was the movie about Brad Pitt being a sad man in space. Um, I, th- I think going into the movie, Gray was like, okay, it's go time. I need to make a movie about toxic masculinity, about how insular space travel is, about father-son relationships that are hard, and I'm also going to tie in a chase on the moon and an overwrought metaphor about climate change and make it work. And that's what he did. And if that's the kind of movie that you're interested in seeing, then this movie is an excellent <laughs> movie for you. The production value is extremely high. Oh, and, and by the way, um, I think he also thought it would be really great to put in some very attractive women uh, with no speaking roles or minimal speaking roles as long as they were dressed in like cool clothing. And he was like, okay, that's fine. Including a love interest who has maybe two words uh, uh, and a, re- a recorded phone message in the whole thing. So this was not the piece for me. Um, I saw it in a theater where there was one other person, and I think that person was much more into the movie. Um, I Yeah, I, I just had trouble with it. There's also a monkey in space, 
And I just, as someone who really struggles to suspend their disbelief, even when I go to the movies and even when the movies are asking me to do this, it was not it was not the movie for me. But if you want to see a movie about a sad man in space who is still attractive, <laughs> uh, knock yourself out. I just want to say, first of all, I'm being told that it's a baboon. Or, yeah, it's, it's a baboon. A baboon. Uh, um, also, a little memory of The Right Stuff. Uh, in The Right Stuff, one of the ways that they uh, try to uh, – one of the reasons that the pilots – don't want to not have control. And this is apparently based on Thomas Tom Wolfe's reporting. Uh, they get uh, – people keep telling them that a monkey is going to make the first flight. And that's very <laughs> upsetting to them, the idea that the monkey is going to do a job that they will eventually be asked <laughs> to do. Um, all right. So, Pedro, your hot take, please. Um, so, I, 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 I loved it um, in terms of um, – you know, in terms of the cinematography, the soundtrack, the acting, all the like the individual components of the movie, I I found I was attracted to. Um, as it it didn't feel like something that was particularly fresh or relevant. I mean, it did feel like callbacks to a lot of other movies, um, but it was something that I was like, well, you know, maybe Brad Pitt should have been you know played. It should have been a female character, uh, you know, going to see her 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 mother. I mean, that would have been at least a different take on what we ended up with, which was like it was yes, hero's journey, sad man going to see his dad. Dad's not who he thought he was. Like, yay! I mean, we we know that already. It was done very well, um, so I liked watching it. But at the end of the day, I was like, okay, yep, that that's about you know, where where that would go. And I, I do, if I can interject, I, I want to say like masculinity and specifically um, toxic masculinity is something that I really do want to see probed more in pop culture. I'm really interested in that. But this was not the work that did that. And if it was trying, it really failed on that. Well, yeah, I don't think front. it was. T- yeah, and it was like, it was like repressed masculinity. Yes. You know, it, w- it was just like, you know, the shell that you wear instead of like, you know how that affects everyone around you. Like, yes, did it affect Liv Tyler because she went away? Yes, but you know the the effects of of what he did really weren't that apparent. So I, I don't know if anyone read the Nathan Heller profile of James Gray in the New Yorker recently, but staff staff writer Nathan Heller wrote wrote this you know pretty lengthy uh, article about uh, about James Gray, about him growing up in Brooklyn and the various movies he's made, including uh, The Lost City of Z and The Immigrant and a few other kind of Brooklyn crime movies. And the the main thrust of the article is that James Gray is a classicist. He's someone very mm-hmm. uh, very interested in the kind of mythologies that mm-hmm. these very simple narratives that are told over and over and over again, uh, and then um, kind of perfecting a form to communicate, even if it's not something completely novel. I think it's something he's trying to get at that is true. And I think that there's a single Mm -hmm. image that sticks out to me, especially from Lost City of Z, the immigrant, and and this that almost, that that hit me so at the Mm -hmm. core as a kind of universal kind of truth and sadness. And this one I'll I'll try to describe very briefly, which is when uh, Brad Pitt uh, this astronaut, Roy McBride, is on his way to Mars because it's where he can communicate with his long-lost father, send a message out into space where he may be in Neptune. Uh, and the the pilot of the ship um, kind of s- stops the ship to take a look at a, a smaller vessel that's sending out an SOS message. Uh, and Brad Pitt and this pilot kind of go out uh, to the ship to see what kind of distress they might be in. And if anyone remembers, there is a maybe two or three shots of Brad Pitt with his visor down in mm-hmm. his helmet, yep. looking at the the spacecraft door as it opens, and all we see is this big hole reflected in Brad Pitt's face. 
it is realistic in the context of the movie in that he's looking at something, you know, he has this reflective mm-hmm. visor on and it's just showing what he's looking at. But I found the, the depth and incredible power of that image of just this nothingness, you know, this incredibly accomplished astronaut who believes in the progress and science and all that stuff. Um, but this hole at the center of the sky that is going to be, you know, Filled maybe by the long lost father, or ultimately, you know, don't hold your uh, hope breath for that. Mm-hmm. But there's something that Gray is capable of finding and producing these images that encapsulate everything about a character, everything we've seen before and after mm-hmm. in a single shot. And I find that something that not any filmmaker can do. And yeah, I think I, it's, I'm it's amazed that we're doing this show without Mercy Quay. This is just dawned on me. I know. Mercy Quay, the most. <laughs> if you're I in mean, the area. Pedro's working <laughs> on an outer space secret project, so obviously he's qualified, <laughs> but the outer space stan of, you know, the greater New Haven area is not with us right now, uh, although we have access to her. So that, that's like weird all by itself. One of the things, I mean, it's interesting that he says, um, you know, that, and I saw Lost City of Z, which I thought was okay, but not all that memorable. Uh, and. Uh, it's interesting that Tom says that thing about him being a classicist because one of the things that I did like about this movie, which I mostly found kind of boring and didn't really reach me very much, but uh, the voiceover is really good. And mm-hmm. once again, the, it, it, there's a little bit of a callback, I think, to Apocalypse Now, but also kind of a callback, I thought, to the old science fiction stories. There's yeah. something about the VO over the music that you know reminded me of the kind of Arthur C. Clarke uh, you know, Samuel Delaney kind of uh, story that you'd read in one of those old science fiction magazines, right? There's like this guy talking. Mm-hmm. You know, also a little bit of Blade Runner going on there too. Yes. But I did, I love yeah. the VO though. And there's something yeah. pulpy about it too. I mean, there's a there's mm-hmm. a car chase yeah. on the moon <laughs> over a fight over, you know, extraction of resources in this highly commodified kind of moon tourist center. I mean, there's, there's something... Yeah, the Applebee's. Right, it's not just tendentious. Right. There's a... Yeah. There's some action scenes too. Right. I, actually, the, the the moon chase was in and of itself. I was like, that would be a pretty cool movie. Like, who are these pirates? Where do you know? Where are they staying? Where is their base? Like, see, you if know, that had if that had been an Oscar nominated animated short, this mm-hmm. would have been great. Pirates yeah. on some vehicles, monkeys on the yeah. other ones, <laughs> and the monkeys. Yeah. Well, and the shot when you know when the the, the there, there's a shot when they you know finally reach the dark side of the moon and now they kind of spin into it and. Again, like I was just like, that's just gorgeous. That's you know, and seeing Neptune, you know, when you finally see it. Sorry, spoiler, you see Neptune. You know, it just it's, it's, it's like it's like barely there. You know, you can you can hardly see it. And yeah, there's there there is. I, now that you're mentioning that he's a classicist and kind of the construction of shots and the care that he took. You know, there's I might want to see it again and just kind of. I see I it in that lens. But. I feel like we are going through a Brad Pitt renaissance yes. right now, too. <laughs> we I mean, I was mm-hmm. so into his performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in uh, Quentin Tarantino's most recent movie. And if Brad Pitt, you know, for the majority of his career, going back to the early 90s, has always, I think, struggled in the role of the main protagonist just because of how big he plays his characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, think of Fight Club being, like, the worst yeah. example. <laughs> it's like these are so exaggerated, so over the top, they're so reprehensible. Uh, there's so much manic energy. Here he just strips it down to the bare bones, and it's just, you know, the twitch of an eye mm-hmm. communicates so much about the stoicism of this character, how much hurt there is, how much he wants to accomplish, and this, you know, divide between himself and everyone around him. 
including Liv Tyler. I I am a big Brad Pitt fan these days, and I I really did enjoy Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think he's having a year in a lot of different ways. The interviews that he's been giving are thoughtful and very interesting. He's obviously, you know, he's not just a pretty face. Um, He also, one of the movies that we talked about this year that we got pretty excited about was The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which his production company kind of locate, saw saw some work by these young guys at, at a festival and put up the money to actually do this so he's kind of a, a force for good I feel like 2019 may turn out to be the year of J-Lo and Brad Pitt right <laughs> J-Lo's got Hustlers the Super Bowl halftime show we were just talking before we went on the air She's, she could do the Super Bowl halftime show and then win an Oscar like just a few weeks later nobody's ever done that um, <laughs> and I, Brad Pitt's having the same kind of year and I, I like him a lot in this but I mean it's just not enough I mean I think I'm with Lucy that just watching him mull over things and talk. He, one of the devices of this movie is that he's constantly reassuring this computer mood assessor that he doesn't have any moods. Uh, and, and the one time that he actually admits that he does have moods, the computer stops trusting him. I mean, <laughs> one of the things that Brad Pitt has learned how to do, his character, Roy, has learned how to do, is sort of the ultimate male trick, which is completely conceal your emotional life. Uh, I'm sure Lucy has something to say. <laughs> no, I, I just, I want to go back to the VOs because I actually did not, fi- I didn't find this movie convincing for a number of reasons. So, of course, you know, Baboon in Space, Moon Chase on Mars, or, uh, mo- sorry, <laughs> Chase on the Moon. Moon and Mars are different places. But anyway, um, I, I didn't find any of that. I, I found very little of the dialogue, actually, both internal and external, convincing. And when I read it, I was like, wow, there were just not judicious editors or like no one with a vagina looked at this movie. <laughs> Uh, before it went to production, I mean, I, I really actually it says that in the credits. I don't know if you stayed for that, but there's just one line that says I, that. I exactly did not. That, yeah. No, I I left the minute uh, the the film was over. Actually, well, so uh, yeah, I, I also do want to say. I mean, this movie has a big uphill climb with me. I don't like astronauts very much. Anyway, they are famously banned from the show. They're not allowed to be here as guests. I really don't like Liv Tyler. Uh, she did, her first movie was a movie called Heavy, which I really liked. But I basically don't like her. Um, I think she's like the worst elf ever. Almost, <laughs> the, the entire time in Lord of the Rings, she looks like she's waiting for a break so she can go have a cigarette. Um, and so that was the fact that she's sort of, as Lucy says, she has almost no lines anyway. But she's the only identifiable person with a you-know-what uh, in this movie. That didn't help me either. So, I mean, I have to sort of like factor all my prejudices against it. Um, but I still don't think... Can I ask another question? What is Donald Sutherland doing in this movie? Donald <laughs> Sutherland is in this movie for no reason whatsoever. I mean, he, he's a, he's, he doesn't have too many scenes, and he says something about how he and Tommy Lee Jones had a big falling out, but I don't think he ever explains what that was. It was probably about whether to destroy the universe or not, <laughs> you know, which is a big dividing point among people uh, and then it's he's gone I well I think that his character is disposed of in a way that every other character who's introduced is in this movie and that if this movie ultimately proves itself to really only be interested in uh, in the Brad Pitt character's experience of the world his incredible psychological and professional and physical isolation here we have another example of someone tangentially related to someone he cares about his dad he went to grad school with him and may have some understanding of what happened to him but at the mere prospect of intimacy in this man's life he's he's immediately discarded of just like the the woman on Mars who who is the kind of station manager who also has a kind of tangential connection to something that his dad did she's introduced and I think 
could have been a potentially very interesting character, but this movie isn't interested in fully fleshed out side characters. It's only interested in this, this one man at the center of it, and I totally understand why that will rub people the wrong way. But I think it's a very intentional decision. I don't think it's, oh, a, yeah. it's a half... But I don't get why we should be interested in this guy who never basically tells us anything about himself. But beyond that, there's a connection to the family and might provide right. some kind of insight about family. But no, he's he's gone because of the moon chase. Right. So I don't know. Is this also a little bit of a throwback to sort of the Gary Cooper type, stolid, you know, you know, Western guy who doesn't say much and and I'm. <laughs> but with- with the, no. I mean, I wish we had sort of a streaming feed of Lucy's facial expressions. <laughs> With the anxiety, I mean, those types of movies did not, uh, you know, plumb the depths of the anxiety and insecurity of those characters. Right. Yeah. I mean, when John Ford or when uh, John Wayne, you know, jumps out of the stagecoach, stagecoach, you know, you're not thinking that this is the guy who has any kind of doubt about his ability but to do whatever did he wants this to do. Either, like, oh, I'm totally. sorry, if, no, he no. goes crazy on <laughs> no. a three month trip to Neptune. Read, no, if I had read like a bad YA novel, and there are good YA novels, right? Like that is the level of internal dialogue in this. There, there was nothing that I could not have predicted. Like I wasted nine dollars going to this movie. <laughs> but I think predicting, being able to predict something in a movie that is interested in a very familiar narrative structure is fine. It's kind of expected, but it's how the director and the actors and all the other people involved, what kind of individual stamp they give to these familiar stories that I think is interesting to watch. Do we think that there's any kind of... uh, It was suggested, I think, by maybe on the Slate Cultural Gab Fest or something, that there's sort of a little run of these existential space movies, uh, that it's The Martian, Mm -hmm. it's Gravity, uh, it's First Man. Uh, There's like something going... There's a kind of movie that's being made right now that is a a big star vehicle probably for one male actor and also maybe a director like Quaron or somebody like that kind of putting his footprint down on the dusty surface of some planet is that why, is that a thing and if so why why do we think it's a thing yeah interstellar oh, as interstellar well. I love, yeah. oh boy i think i suppressed so, that one hilarious i mean i yeah i think it i mean it's a genre in and of itself you know going back to like the 2001 right space odyssey um and there are there aren't that many of them, you know. It's not like there's two or three of these a year. Uh, I love The Martian, so I read the book and I saw I saw the movie, and that one, I'll I'll, I'll just watch that over and over again. Yeah, I The Martian's just, kind of an outlier, right? It really kind of has a, a little bit more of a sense of humor. You really yeah. get to get know Matt Damon's character, mm-hmm. and there's like all sorts of other people back on Earth and the people who are right. flying around and the <laughs> thing. I think is John Ortiz on on that thing too is he there it's either him or no, donald glover's in it donald yeah so yeah. but anyway there's like a lot of other people who are kind of enjoyable to watch too it, it isn't quite as isolated as basically yeah. gravity is sandra bullock once george clooney's out of the way you know <laughs> gravity is just sandra bullock trying to get home you know there and it's pr- that's the kind of existential thing and you know I, I think it is pretty much ryan gosling in first man right <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. And well, I'm glad that uh, that Pedro brings up uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which made in 1967. Uh, I think that, you know, going back to at least uh, 50 plus years ago, there are maybe two main ways that one can make a a space movie. There's the Star Wars minimal introspection, maximal entertainment. And then there's, you know, looking at space as truly the, you know, this incredible unknowable frontier where people go to the very ends of to try to figure out who they are and all, all that stuff. And I think yeah, I'm, we may be in a moment of it now, but I don't think it's unique to the 2010s. I think that, you know, Stanley Kubrick and also uh, Andre Tarkovsky with Solars were, were doing this 50 years ago too. But I think people also, I, I mean, the, I, I don't think the genre will ever go out of style either. 
Um, be, and this is where Mercy Quay really should be here. Um, but there is such a deep interest in what's out there. And mm-hmm. uh, Pedro's nodding, of course. But it, like, uh, of course there is. You look up at the night sky and you feel so incredibly small and you feel like you don't know what's out there. And I think that question of is there intelligent life out there is really, really interesting. And and that plus this this beautiful... Um, sort of backdrop of the stars and the galaxy and the Milky Way is it it does make for an interesting film I think in theory all right we should probably uh, take a break so we'll have lots of time to talk not just about Downton Abbey but we're also going to explore that (laughs) whole sort of TV to movies phenomenon so that's coming up after the proverbial this All right, that is, of course, the theme music uh, to Downton Abbey. I say, of course, but uh, like all these things, Downton Abbey has a select uh, audience. Uh, It turns out to be a fairly large select audience, as we said before, $31 million opening weekend. Best over ever for focus features, which tends not to do, for example, Marvel Comics Universe movies. But uh, this maybe is their Marvel Comics Universe movie in the sense that you have a familiar set of characters, familiar to a certain group of people. Uh, People want to see them kind of do their thing, exercise their superpowers, Uh, movies that 84% 84% on the tomato meter uh, uh, and uh, the audience, that's the critics score at uh, Rotten Tomatoes. The audience score is 95%. People who go to this movie really like it. Uh, just to kind of get you all in the mood for it uh, here. By the way, we figured out it is just called Downton Abbey. It's not called Downton Abbey Fire Walk With Me or anything like that. I thought um, it was Downtown Abbey. Yeah, it's <laughs> at Downtown Abbey. That's Hustlers. Uh, and uh, no, I, I decided it should be called Downton Abbey, God is a Monarchist, which is the line <laughs> spoken by, by Lady Mary in this movie. Uh, all right, so here we have one um, of the things uh, about Downton, Downton Abbey, one of the premises, very much like Upstairs, Downstairs. It is the story of, uh, of nobility uh, living a uh, pretty cosseted but somehow stressful uh, life upstairs, uh, downstairs. There are servants who are working very hard, but also trying to thread through their own ambitions uh, and wants and needs. So this is all about a visit by the king. King George V uh, is going to, king and queen are actually going to visit. Uh, they're going to stay at Downton Abbey, which is considered a lesser house on the uh, English countryside, uh, but they're going there anyway. And they're bringing with them their own snotty bunch of servants who are throwing shade on the beloved set of uh, servants <laughs> that we've come to know uh, and care about. So let's hear a little bit of that. So my maids and I will not be involved in the preparations. You mean during the stay, you'll be the butler and... Excuse me, I am not a butler. I am the king's page of the back stairs. <laughs> so our staff has nothing to do? I'm sure they can be useful. But how can they eat and get dressed at Raby Castle if the chef and the valet and the maid are all here? We have two of each. The principal valet and the principal dresser will arrive in advance of their majesties who bring an equerry, a lady-in-waiting, two detectives and two chauffeurs. The other chef goes from Raby to Harwood. Four footmen go with him and the other four come here. Do you all understand me? 
So that scene is, I think it's played for a certain amount of laughs, and it is uh, fancy uh, servants talking to only slightly less fancy uh, servants uh, about who's fancier. Uh, we should say that the room is a little bit divided here. I think Pedro and I are both uh, pretty much uh, in the Downton Abbey. We, I mean, we've seen the whole series and stuff like that. I'm not sure that Tom and Lucy have, so uh, we'll sort of divide things out. Well, Lucy, why don't you go first? Oh, um, <laughs> I well, <you> don't have <laughs> to. <laughs> no, I'm I'm happy to. Uh, nothing happened in this movie. Uh, I I think I actually liked Ad Astra, uh, 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 whatever. Ed Asner. Yes, better uh, than this. Um, nothing. So nothing really happened. But I think it was also a hard movie to understand if one didn't have the context of every season of the show. So I have seen exactly one episode of the show, and I have a somewhat working knowledge of the show from my grandmother, who has an encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of Downton Abbey. Um, however, I, I don't think... I mean, I, one thing that Pedro brought up was the stakes did not seem very high in this movie. And the one episode I have seen... Uh, is where it, I think it's a holiday special from a couple of years ago, and the household gets struck by the Spanish flu, yes. and some people die, mm-hmm. and nothing happens. So that <laughs> so I yeah. went into this movie thinking like, okay, the stakes are going to be really high. Um, there is an assassination attempt in this movie, and that's about as as yes. fast as yeah. your heart pounds. Well, there also the is the uh, head butler Thomas, who is gay, who gets arrested because mm-hmm. you. At that time, oh, yes, and, that and for happen. decades after that, too, right. you could ju- being gay was a criminal act, and it was a very scary environment. But, then it but it's resolved in about yeah. five yes. minutes. Yes. It, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I would agree, and I think Pedro would too. That it's yeah. well, Pedro, go ahead. You can talk about yeah, the stakes I, here. I mean, the, the interesting thing, like like you said, the series because it had to be a series and had to have drama and stuff to propel things forward. Um, you know, there were, like you said, literally the the entire you know history of the Spanish flu occurs in like one episode for Downton Abbey. You know, there's World War One. Um, you know, there's characters who get uh, tried for murder. There's two characters who get tried for murder uh, that they didn't commit. Um, there's just there are a lot of things that happen. Um, the interesting thing is when I going into this movie, I was wondering if they were you know they this had a series finale. It ended on a very beautiful and hopeful note. Um, and I was wondering, is are they going to break, you know, break the movie, you know, break the Downton Abbey, uh, you know, happiness to, to kind of propel things forward as sequels tend to do? Um, and they didn't. They just started where they left off, and interestingly enough, end up with a movie that because everyone is pretty much where they were, and we don't want them to to to, to decline from that, ends up with very very low stakes and no drama, but like ultimate fan service like because again if you've seen the characters mm-hmm. and you've spent all these seasons every little line and people talking and you know it is just like it's just like a marvel movie where you you need to see enough of them to be able to kind of piece together what's actually happening on screen i disagree with that uh, analogy though because i can go into a marvel movie completely blind and really enjoy myself and that was not the case with this movie although i mean if endgame you really endgame was dependent on you having seen 22 movies i mean like yeah, I've seen... i guess that yeah that's it's really endgame versus yeah. the other ones yeah tom yeah, I, I would say my experience with this movie uh, is very similar to my experience eating a, a pretty big bag of like very salty and buttery popcorn while watching the movie <laughs> while sitting next to Lucy in that it started out with like really giddy, excited, like overeager consumption of this junk food. And then my stomach kind of started to hurt, and then I didn't really feel too well. And then by the end of it, I was overcome by this just incredible lethargy where I just wanted it all to end so I could go to sleep. I actually did 
like this movie for the most part. I found it pretty charming, and I was pretty won over by a, a RogerEbert.com review that I shared with the group uh, via email thread by Matt Zoller Seitz, who you know, has written uh, film, you know, film uh, filmography books about uh, Oliver Stone and about Wes Anderson. Um, but he gave this movie a three and a half star rating, and he described it a film in which well dressed, reasonably thoughtful adults do and say grown up things, <laughs> as opposed to you know robots and Jedi's and dinosaurs and stuff like that. I think what ultimately really soured me to the movie is again going back to you know what I liked about Ad Astra are the ideas behind it I mean even something as mm-hmm. kind of superficial and, and chatty and fun as this uh, is has an underlying ideology and for this it's this incredibly kind of repulsive conservative fantasy uh, of allegiance to the monarchy of allegiance to one's superiors uh, and friendship between people of different classes that the relationship is in fact defined by professional obligation and servitude. Uh, it it just you know really did make me feel like the popcorn a little gross at the end of it. Even though I really appreciated the joke, God is a monarchist because the weather's so nice. That that was that was what the movie was actually saying based on the characters it was displaying. And I you know that's just not not for me. I I I mean I, I wouldn't say first of all I really like the series a lot. I didn't think this movie was as tightly written uh, as really good episodes of the series were. I think that points I guess already been kind of made. I was sort of charmed by the audience I was with. So this is a <laughs> Monday night in Bloomfield, Connecticut. And there were this is like six fifteen show, uh, and there were I think maybe forty fifty people in the theater, which is like I go to that theater all the time, and there's like six people in it or something, uh, and, and most of them were women. I, there were some things that looked like maybe mother daughter dates, you know, uh, adult daughter taking mom to the movie. Speaking of Lucy's grandmother, um, they were having a really good time too. They, I mean, I don't think the movie for example, one of the things that this series is dependent on a lot is the this friend, frenemy relationship that is uh, portrayed between the uh, character played by Maggie Smith, the Dowager mm-hmm. Countess, and, and Penelope Wilton, who's sort of the more liberal progressive uh, person seeing the future, same age group as the Dowager Countess. The Dowager Countess famously has just no connection to modernity. The biggest laugh she ever got in the series is when people were talking about the weekend and she finally said, what is a weekend? <laughs> uh, because basically every day is the same <laughs> if you're really rich and pampered. But I, I didn't think the dialogue was as sharp this time as it could be in the series but everybody was just laughing at every single thing the Dowager Countess ever said except the one kind of grave thing <laughs> she eventually uh, says but and and they were happy you know and it is a, a series I don't know about the movie in the series I think women are subjects and men are objects you know women in the in the series tended to have discernible inner lives, uh, motivations that were interesting. We see a lot of the world through the women. Lady Edith, Lady Mary, the Dowager Countess, Anna downstairs, mm-hmm. Daisy downstairs. Whereas some of the men, I mean, Lord Grantham is kind of adult, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we just kind of see him. Carson is kind of an object. We just kind of see him. And Pedro, one of mm-hmm. the things that I think the series has done really well, it's the reason it has that huge women fan base. I didn't think the movie did it quite well as well. As a matter of fact, Tom Brand the uh, the Irish man who marries uh, mm-hmm. w- one of the noble uh, sisters uh, of the family. He, I think he's kind of got the pivotal role in this movie, which surprised me. Yeah, that is surprising. I, I think that um, it, it's. I think it's because his plot line was still kind of left unresolved, and so they had a lot to work with there. Versus, um, you know, the the the, the women and, and the sisters have all kind of been settled to some degree. Um, 
But I do think actually I saw it um, with my wife on a Monday at 10 a.m. And it was, you know, I think mostly it was a balanced audience, I think. But it was the same thing. Everyone was laughing and enjoying it very much. All right. So we should say that um, shipped into this movie is Imelda Staunton, who's not in the series. She's a a wonderful British actress. She happens to be married to the guy who plays Carson. Uh, Jim Carter is his name. So she's brought in as a new foe uh, to face off um, Maggie Smith's uh, Violet Crawley in very low stakes (laughs) kinds of arguments about who's going to inherit money. Even Uh, more money. (laughs) Even more money. Even more money. Exactly. Well put. And so Tuppence Middleton plays Lucy, this uh, kind of awkward young woman who may be about to um, inherit a, a large fortune from Imelda Staunton. The, co- the Dowager Countess doesn't like this idea, so here's a little clip among the three of them. How clever of you to find me. Well, not really. I lived here 40 years. I assume this is your maid? Yes, this is Lucy Smith. Oh, good evening, Smith. Good evening, milady. Shall I go? No, not for me. Not for me. I'm delighted to meet you. I've heard so much about you. Is there something you want? Hmm? Oh, just just to see you're comfortable. And to confirm our little chat for later. I live my own life now, Violet. I'm not what I was. My father is gone. My husband is gone. I see no reason not to do what I want. That doesn't mean there is no reason. Merely that you cannot see it. I think Lady Merton is right. We'll have it out once and for all. But now I must go to Her Majesty. You know, Tom, one of the things that we sort of debated about as we were emailing about this is this kind of transference of TV to movies, movies back to TV. Um, and it, it, this particular thing, I, I think they just knew that every, there was a kind of a market for more. And as everybody has suggested, it wasn't necessary to concoct some huge, dramatic, fascinating life or death plot line. People just wanted to sit there and have this wash over them again. But it seems as though now we live in such a kind of continuous multi-platform world where stuff can be shifted around and played around and different characters harped on. So we go from uh, from Breaking Bad to Better Call Saul, but there's also a Breaking Bad movie that only has Jesse in it that's coming out pretty soon. It feels as though these things that are successful, they just kind of churn forever in different forms. Yeah, and you know, I have never seen an episode of Downton Abbey before watching this movie, and even though I think that that made the plot and the you know two dozen or three dozen mm-hmm. or four dozen characters all the more inscrutable, uh, I that didn't necessarily bother me. I think because we so rarely see um, movie adaptations of TV shows like this. I mean, the movie adaptations we see are, you know, much, um, not bigger budget, but kind of bigger explosions. Mm-hmm. I mean, to follow a kind of similar pattern of uh, re- uh, singular, you know, bad men doing really bad things or superheroes kind of blowing up the world or trying to save the world from getting blown up. And again, there's something kind of charming about the bizarre tonal equality of treating like the attempted assassination of the king and serving the king dinner with like the same level of stakes. <laughs> um, but hey, the, if that, that was part of the, it seemed to be part of the charm of the show and certainly part of the charm of the movie. I want to quickly say Maggie Smith, love. I mean, any any movie with her in it, anything within her, is, she's so fun. She's such an incredible actress. The way she lingers on every single one of those lines. She's so uh, playful and quiet. And mm-hmm. I, I do think that 
you're quite astute in pointing out that men are objects and kind of butts of jokes. I want to single out one one actor in this who I think got some very well-deserved laughs, Kevin Doyle, who plays this pretty peripheral character named Joseph Mosley, who's like one part <laughs> in the movie is he speaks up out of turn at the dinner. And it actually is a really tense and really funny uh, and humiliating moment. And, you know, there are a few moments that I think I imagine transfer well from the small screen to the big screen. Um, but it is, uh, yes, certainly a little baffling in terms of uh, going into this completely blind. I think also, I mean, maybe we could just take a minute or two to just talk about that. Pedro, you, you sort of, I, I think, kind of brought this up, that idea of, of moving stuff from TV to, uh, to, to the movie screen. I mean, first of all, not everything transfers all that well, and you, you have to figure out, like, how you're going to do it, how you're going to – I mean, in this case, one of the things they had was a thing, a really big thing that people like to look at, which is the building. Right, yeah. <laughs> so you can I, have yeah. drones fly around and shoot it from <laughs> every possible angle. But, I mean, I, it's sort of an interesting question, like, how much – how much TV stuff is going to transfer? I mean, there's going to be Breaking Bad is now going to do just Rick Grimes movies with nobody else from Breaking Bad. <laughs> uh, Walking Dead. Yeah, Walking yeah, Dead. Walking, what did yeah. I say? Oh, I, oh, I said Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah. Walking Dead. <laughs> um, I got my gerunds mixed up. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, there's going to be a Breaking Bad movie, a Walking Dead movie. I mean, yeah. it, it is kind of interesting that now you just get these franchises that just – I mean, I assume there's going to be another Downton Abbey movie, right? Yeah, it would be interesting to see if – I mean, they, they left it open. I mean, and, and you could have, you know, the king returning and have all the same <laughs> – just do it again. Um, so, you know, it will be interesting to see if they just decide to do that one more time or not. Um, but I do think it, it's interesting to see – I mean, you know, Star Trek 50 years ago and uh, 40 years ago moved into – from being a TV series and into being uh, some films – um, and I think that it's it's you know it's it's happening now just more because we have these platforms which can kind of show film level quality stuff on these streaming platforms because they just have so much money. Um, so like Disney's going to be doing you know an Obi Wan kind of three movie event type thing. Um, you know plus they're doing you know uh, so you know and and I think that you've just got. There's just so much desire for for content that I think you're just going to start doing these spinoffs. I mean, how many, um, you know, you just have uh, HBO in terms of uh, Game of Thrones. You know, they're spinning off like three more series and movies. I mean, it's just going to be, it's just getting kind of crazy. By the way, did you notice that you're a Game of Thrones person, right? Uh, Yeah, the books mostly. Okay, because Robert Baratheon uh, in uh, Downton Abbey is running the local store. He's a shopkeeper. Uh, <laughs> he's a very overzealous shopkeeper. He's a very overzealous. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, one of the problems with this movie, too, for I think us as uh, people from a different country with a different kind of government, at least mm-hmm. allegedly a different kind of government, <laughs> uh, and uh, and for those of us who are Irish-American, too, and possibly Irish Republicans <laughs> at heart, I mean, everybody is just – talk about stands. You know, everybody is so incredibly giddy uh, about the presence. And, and I think we're meant to see that as weird. Uh, but maybe we're not. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, but I mean, everybody from the shopkeeper to every member of the, stir, the, of the service, Mr. Mosley is still, practically has to have oxygen uh, administered mm-hmm. to him at intervals because he's just, his head is spinning. And of course, one of the things we know about the royals is they're not that impressive. <laughs> they just happen to be, you know, I mean, they were born on third base, right? Mm-hmm. But 
I mean, I I think there's a very specific component of Downton Abbey where people really like... So it's two things. People like to escape, and people really like period pieces. It's the same reason people go into period rooms and really enjoy it in museums, and they listen to the harp harp music, and they linger, and they look at the couches with beautiful satin on them. Um, And and I think for that reason... I mean, I I remember watching uh, an episode of Downton Abbey with my grandmother, who now cannot walk. She's completely either in a wheelchair or in a recliner. And she said, wouldn't it be wonderful to be that rich? <laughs> and it, and which is very funny because she's someone who kind of has like worked her way up on the social ladder. And so so thinking about that and and that fantasy that you get to escape into this really sumptuous world for an hour or in this in the case of this movie, I don't know, two hours and change, something like that is yeah, there is something like that. And, and Colin, when you were saying the best part of it may have been the audience, I think that was true for uh, Tom and I, too. I, I mean, they that was delightful. Like, if, if anyone's getting an Oscar from this movie, it is the collective audience that <laughs> goes to the and, and especially, like, the old biddies and, and moms and daughters. So I think, yes, there's a market for it, absolutely. Because, all right. We, we should probably take yeah. a little break here, though, so we'll all, you'll have chances to do great endorsements when we get back. But this movie is called Downton Abbey. God is a monarchist. I just give it that subtitle. Down with the king for years, about ten of them. Recruiting suckers, Mac and Mike and making men of Today's show was produced by. Hey, what, what's happening to Jonathan McPants? He's turning into Ed Asner. Oh my god! I'm turning into Ed Asner! Amanda Fish has a lot of spunk! I hate spunk! The part of Bill Curry was played by Mary Tyler Moore. On Monday, more impeachment coverage. And somehow we'll all stop being Ed Asner. It's this darned antimatter somebody left in the break room fridge. And now, back to Ed. I wrote that just so I could make her do Ed Asner, uh, and I'm glad I did. All right, so, uh, Tom, why don't you get us going with endorsements? Okay, it's going to be a film nerd endorsement, so uh, indulge me. I apologize. Um, it, I've been watching uh, a lot of entries in this series on the Criterion Channel, a streaming service put out by uh, the Criterion Collection, which for decades has been publishing really high uh, production value versions of uh, classic and independent form films. I've been watching this series called uh, Observations on Film Art, hosted by two film historians, uh, David Bortwell and Kim Thompson. And for anyone interested in the kind of the bare bones kind of film vocabulary and how it's realized and perfected by like the masters of cinema, it's like it's awesome. It's so enlightening, mm-hmm. and they come in these little five minute clips, and then always associated with the the movie on which the film historian is analyzing. You can watch right after it, and so I particularly recommend one uh, by David Bordwell on editing in Kurosawa films, and then the. 40s, uh, 1940s uh, movie about uh, jujitsu called Senshiro Sugata. But it, for, in five minutes, it breaks down how Kurosawa uses editing to the extent that he does, and then you get to watch the whole movie and experience the wonder of like a truly gifted tour. So observ- observations on film art, 
on Criterion Channel. All right. That was a very nerdy film uh, endorsement. <laughs> uh, Lucy, how about you? So I have two. Um, the first, I've been thinking a lot about climate change and how we process information about climate change. And there is a group called CCTA Climate Change Theater Action. And they've come out with 50 new plays. They're about five-minute plays. Each, each of them are about five minutes um, this year. And they are basically having an open call. So if you are a person with a body who ble- breathes air, you can perform uh, one or any of these plays in a classroom, on a uh, city green, on a street, whatever. Um, And and the whole idea is to spread information that isn't just gloom and doom. Um, I, I also recommend things like the uninhabitable earth for that gloom and doom. Um, And then the other thing, just Colin, because you replayed your episode on maternal mortality uh, this week, which is one of my uh, favorite episodes of the show, which I feel weird saying, um, is I I just want to endorse nurse midwives um, for the work they do. They're super awesome. And uh, you also can see a nurse midwife if you are not specifically a pregnant woman. And uh, I do this and I, I highly, highly recommend it. They're more thorough than gynecologists. Um, and then the, the Missing Mothers Project, which is a joint project of ProPublica and NPR that's really, really good about maternal mortality. All right. Thank you for all those endorsements, <laughs> Lucy Gelman. Pedro, what have you got for us? So um, on the Netflix, uh, we have been watching at home uh, the show Kim's Convenience. Uh, it is. It came out, I think, last year, but it's Canadian. My sister uh, is living in Toronto, um, and she suggested it to us um, because um, you know you see a lot of the city in it. But it is a, it's a small, cute bubblegum sitcom about an immigrant family um, from Korea who have a convenience store in Toronto and um, their various hijinks um, ensue. And it's, you know, it is, it's just a small 20, 25 minute show. Um, It's all about, you know, the immigrant experience and like the new generation of kids who grew up and it feels, and I read this in a review, um, it does feel like it takes place in an alternate timeline where maybe we had a different electoral result in 2016 because it is happening in Canada who's you know, a lot more you know, progressive uh, on many things. And so the outlook just feels like, oh, I remember what that felt like. So it's just fun to watch um, for a whole bunch of reasons. But it's, you know, the, the cast is great. Um, the the father and the mom are, are just, it's 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 just hilarious. You'll, you'll blow through three seasons in, you know, a week or two. And Okay. So um, I want to just quickly, I should have done this at the top of the show, tell you that um, on October 25th uh, on the nose, we're going to talk about Stephen King's novel, The Institute. We don't do books very often, but uh, Rich Grosso, Chris Grosso, Rich Holland, and Julia Pastel and I will all be reading uh, The Institute and talking to you about that. So, you, you know, if you want to join in somehow, you might want to get a copy. Also, if you want to get ready for next week, you should be watching Unbelievable on Netflix if you haven't already. It's very, uh, very addictive uh, series. Um, I, I'm going to sort of medium endorse uh, the Between Two Ferns movie, which has also been released onto Netflix. Uh, it, it's it's imperfect, uh, and really the best parts of the movie are uh, Zach Galifianakis just doing yet another and another and another Between Two Ferns interview. It starts out with a great Matthew McConaughey uh, interview, but I don't know. I turned it on last night just to past 20 minutes, uh, and then I wound up watching the whole thing. So that says something. All right. Thanks very much to these wonderful guests here, Pedro Soto and Tom Breen and Lucy Gelman. Uh, thanks to Jonathan McPants for getting it all together, and we'll be back on Monday. Okay.